the books that we had in Iran at the time available, I mean, no, we didn't even have words for certain things. Like orgasm was not a thing. You're listening to Love and Libido with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire. My hope is that you will learn tools to create connection and cultivate passion, both within yourself and in your relationships. Here's what's coming up on today's episode. Have you ever struggled to reconcile how your faith affects the way you feel about your sexuality? You're not alone. This is a third of a three-part mini-series on sex and faith. While faith isn't the focus of this whole podcast, it is something that impacts the way so many people feel about their sexuality. And I thought it would be great to open season two with a deep dive into this very common dilemma. If you haven't listened to the first episode of the series when I interviewed Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale, be sure to go check it out because we discuss some important principles that will guide you as you take in all the important information in this episode. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Sarah Nasserzadeh, an Iranian-born, LA-based sex and relationship therapist, to discuss some truths and lies about sex in the Muslim community. By the way, if you have a story about how religion affected the way you feel about your sexuality, I want to hear about it. As much as we learn from other experts, nothing makes us feel more connected than hearing from our peers. Visit loveandlibido.com to share your story. I'll compile them and air them on an upcoming episode. Also, if you have a general sex or relationship question, you can submit that too by visiting loveandlibido.com. I am thrilled to start my Q&A episodes. Okay, let's get started on today's episode. Okay, welcome everybody today. I am so thrilled for today's guest. I am joined by Dr. Sarah Nasserzadeh, who is a world-renowned researcher, award-winning author, and a social psychologist specializing in love, relationships, sexuality, and intercultural fluency. She is a senior technical and cultural advisor to the United Nations and an elected member of the Interagency Task Force on Religion and Development. In 2009, Dr. Nasserzadeh founded the Middle East Sexual Health Committee at the World Association for Sexual Health to provide a voice to advocates of sexual health within the region. In 2006, Dr. Nasserzadeh joined the BBC World Service to create and host a radio, online, and TV show that was dedicated to providing accurate, evidence-informed, and culturally responsive information about sexuality to a Farsi-speaking audience. BBC Persia named her as one of BBC's top 100 women in 2019. I love her motto, which is that we can create world peace one relationship at a time. Her most recent research was on genital practices around the world and a decade-long research project that led to an introduction to a whole new model of love called Emergent Love, which we're going to talk about today. She lives in Los Angeles, and I will list her full bio in the show notes along with links to her work on Emergent Love and her relationship panoramic inventory, which is kind of like a DIY annual wellness exam for your relationship. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me. Yes, I am so thrilled to have you on. So for those of you tuning into this episode, this is part of a kickoff mini series for the podcast where I'm exploring the intersection between faith and sex and relationships. And um, Dr. Sarah, if that's okay that I call you that. Absolutely. Right. Is, um, I mean, she's so 
she's so global and she really knows so much about everything, but I reached out to her specifically so that we could dive into the relationship between Islam and sexuality and relationships. And so that's going to be the focus for today's conversation. So Sarah, bearing in mind that Islam is a huge world religion, and of course, cultural differences play into how it's interpreted. What would you say are some general trends that you see around sex and relationship practices, particularly among Americans who practice Islam? Well, that's a very broad question. A couple of notes before we go there. You were very kind to say that I knew a lot about many things. Not really. <laughs> so I feel that like the is... more we, the more of an expert people think we are, the less we feel like we know personally, right? Well, the more you know, the more you know how much you really don't know. So exactly, exactly. That's, that's the place I am. But thank you for that. I just wanted to clarify. So <laughs> I know that I joined you to speak about faith and, um, you know, Islam in particular. Mm -hmm. I just want to put a disclaimer out that I am no expert on Islam or, you know, any other religion. It's just that I had the privilege to work with various groups and study, you know, interfaith. And uh, mm -hmm. so, and on that note, I would like to invite people to think that when we are thinking about Christians, Muslims, you know, Muslims and, you know, other um, faith groups or religious um, structured uh, religious groups, we need to really think that um, specific to Islam, uh, particularly in Quran, there's a verse that talks about there are um, as many ways to explore God and be faithful to God as there are humans on earth. Mm -hmm. So if you really just capture the whole conversation that we have in that light, that will give us an opportunity to explore without feeling like, you know, whatever that I'm saying is actually set in stone or it has any like a um, golden proof or, you know, like um, that. I wanted to put that also uh, forward. You. That mm -hmm. this is like based on my experience and my understanding of the faith and the groups that I worked with. Yes. Now going, right. So now going to your question as, uh, you know, Muslims who um, practice Islam, uh, which could be in many different ways, right? Um, your question is how they link that into the sexuality that they're experiencing. Is that like uh, the question? Yes. Like, what would you say is the general feeling about sexuality for people who practice Islam? And of course, with any religion, there are people who are a bit more orthodox and people who are a bit more progressive. And so I know that there's a wide range, but I think a lot of people hold stereotypes. And yes. so part of our conversation today is hopefully to debunk some myths and mm -hmm. shed some light on the truth. And so I do think it's helpful sometimes to start more broadly um, in a discussion of what trends you typically see, say, in your sex therapy practice. Yeah, sure. Obviously, uh, that's a big part. Absolutely. So um, again, before we do that, this is so annoying. Before we do that, let's put it into the context. We first talk about culture because, you know, like a, a person practices their rituals or beliefs, um, not in vacuum, but within a cultural context, right? Even within the United States of America, our beautiful big country, there's so many varieties of cultural pockets that we are living in within the context. Culture is basically who we are. So if, if we really simplify it, right? And then within those cultures, there are norms that we are experiencing. Norms are what majority of people do. And it's a very different description uh, from what we call, oh, this is normal. Is this normal? We're not talking about that. We're talking about norms, which uh, within 
um, sociology, field of sociology, the way that it's described is the majority of people, whatever that they do, that becomes the norm, right? Mm -hmm. So if we choose as individuals or as groups to go by those norms, abide by them, we receive positive rewards. If we choose to go against it, then we are punished in one way or the other. So this is no different for the Muslim communities and a person who perceives, you know, and some of these norms are actually imposed. Some of them are um, real because, you know, everybody's talking about it, they're overt, and some of them are perceived. And within the Muslim community, um, in my humble experience, there are so many perceived norms and expectations that we haven't even explored because um, contrary to what people believe that many people believe that Muslims, we just, you know, label people in that box. Mm -hmm. uh, Many people don't even even speak Arabic as their first language. So the the common script that uh, unites all the Muslims um, regardless of which sect they're coming from is Quran and Quran is written in Arabic. Mm-hmm. Arabic is a very rich language. So the way that I read it as you know, I learned Arabic as a second language or third, fourth language, it's a very different understanding than a scholar in Arabic language. So there you can see how we get divided based on our interpretation, the interpretations that are handed to us and also translations that right. you know, we get from um, different parts. Um, so that this is only within the Muslim community. Imagine that with the outside the Muslim community, what would be the perception? Exactly. Yeah. Have, and right? so, and so let's talk a little bit about that. What do you think are some of the perceptions of the Muslim com- community as it relates to sex and relationships and love and marriage? Mm-hmm. So basically the first thing that I hear from people is a sense of pity mm. and um, those condescending um, atmosphere that I experience when I go to a setting like oh my god that poor woman oh my god that must be too hot in this summer day under that uh, covering mm-hmm. uh, and it's really interesting to me because if you really read through the history and if you actually experience people who choose their rituals who choose their attires who choose the way that you know they, they practice their religion there is a reason the religion or the religious beliefs or rituals serve them in one way or the other for the most part. So for us, it's a little bit ignorant just to be on the other side and feel privileged and feel like um, even worse, feel the sense that I'm the hero, let's go rescue them. Right. So that is the first thing that I see that, you know, sense of patronization Mm -hmm. and almost sympathy. Yeah, it's so true. I I know like when I've spoken to women who choose to wear a head covering or hijab that a lot of them who make that choice do so because it's symbolic and meaningful to Mm -hmm. them. It makes them feel close to God, almost like someone maybe wearing a cross necklace or something. I almost have the sense it's like an accessory that's symbolic and meaningful to them as opposed Mm -hmm. to something that they feel is oppressing in any way. Mm -hmm. And also modesty is a, a very big value in Islam. And as a sign of modesty, you don't actually uh, put on flashy clothes Mm -hmm. or you don't show off with your body. So the body is to serve you, not you to serve the body in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's there's a fundamental difference, I think, where we are thinking about the Muslim mentality. That, um, and the other thing is, you know, the word Islam and Muslim in general, Muslim, the person who is practicing of Islam, is the person who is submitting to the will of God. And with that, you're relinquishing all the ego 
you know, not un- unhealthy ego, supposedly, you know, yeah. that, uh, and I'm not saying that all Muslims are, you know, really abiding by all of those, obviously, but um, that is the meaning that mm-hmm. it is. And these actually follows to the, you know, route of modesty, open heartedness, kindness, seeing everybody with the same eyes. So it's not like nowhere in Quran, it says Muslims are the chosen tribe or mm-hmm. chosen groups. There is nowhere in Quran. Um, as a matter of fact, if you read it, it says that you know, you're all brothers and sisters, regardless of the colors, and the colors are ris- listed. As you know, the yeah. yellow and brown and red and all of those are actually listed. Mm-hmm. So these are the ones that, you know, if we, the more we know as, you know, the origin, the more we also can hold people responsible to abide by them, you know, mm-hmm. rather you... than just rigid. Right, right. So talk about that a little bit more about what you mean about holding people responsible. Like, for example, in Islam, one of the things that come really like, you know, if, if a person knows Islam, even the basics, they know health of the person, mental health and physical health is of gold value in Islam. So that's why, you know, as, per, as a person who works around sexuality, I have a leverage point. So if I go to a community, I want to open up a negotiation piece. I start there. I say, look, do you remember that from the prophet as well as uh, Quran, the scripts, you know, the Holy Script? Um, so health of the person comes first. The other one is uh, education. Almost all the verses in Islam ends with something that is including that for people who think, thinking is very much valued in Islam. Nowhere in Quran it says, close your eyes and just follow like a sheep. Yeah, nowhere like it that. says that mm-hmm. you know it says question it find your own way so it's a very um almost intellectual in a way mm-hmm. that you know so these two that you know for your audience if they're really really wanting to if they're colleagues uh, who are working working within community or their clinical setting or any setting really social setting it's really helpful to know that these two golden rules apply in islam that education and health comes first for any yeah. muslim I think that is really good to know. And I can see how, from your perspective, that would be a really great segue mm-hmm. to into a discussion about sexual health being a part of that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sexual health actually is a part of that from health perspective, but also although within Islam, it's not allowed for a Muslim, uh, Muslim person to explore sex um, before marriage, extra marriage. Uh, however, um, within the constitute of marriage, within the constitute that is described, you know, there are certain, like the liberty is obviously offered that, you know, you can explore almost anything with your partner, you know, in a con- consensual way, obviously. Well, and I, I think that's a good point because I think a lot of people do have this perception that there's huge gender inequality mm-hmm. in, among um, Islamic people and that I imagine extends even once people are married into perhaps gender equality in sexual relations. And so I'm curious what it actually says mm-hmm. about, you know, male sexual pleasure versus female ple- sexual pleasure. You know, there's stuff written in the Bible, for example, that kind of speaks to submitting to your husband. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if there's any of that written in the Quran as well. Well, it's the same way I would say in that phrase that you just said, submitting to your husband. One of the things that I find a little bit challenging when working within the Muslim community specifically, I'm not saying this is like specific to Muslims, but you know, like, uh, because as you know, I work cross faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but this issue of before marriage, you keep 
yourself intact and you know hymen is so sacred and you know you keep it together you keep your virginity and you know almost a, um, a component of innocence you have to preserve that yeah so i know that hymenoplasties which is a surgical procedure in which the surgeon attempts to reconstruct the tissue that makes up the hymen have become increasingly popular in cultures where virginity is prized particularly when a woman may incur emotional or physical harm or even death if her partner does not believe she's a virgin at the time of first intercourse. The hymen, by the way, is a membranous tissue that doesn't cover but surrounds the vaginal opening. And it actually doesn't break because it already has a hole in it. If it fully covered the vaginal opening, menstrual blood and discharge wouldn't be able to come out. So stretched is actually a better word than break. By the way, no one can tell whether you're a virgin, the concept of which is a total social construct by performing a vaginal exam. The hymen can be stretched at a young age by things like riding a bike, horseback riding, using tampons, or even by engaging in high intensity sports. And a lot of people don't even experience any pain or bleeding when the hymen is stretched. Nevertheless, this procedure has become popular in some communities, the Muslim community being one of them. Women who lack the resources for this surgical procedure sometimes turn to other options, one being what's commonly referred to as a virginity pill. It's not a pill, but rather a vaginal suppository to make it appear as if she's bleeding during first intercourse. The suppository heats up with her body temperature and, if she times it correctly, releases red fluid when the coating dissolves. So these women experience extreme pressure to remain virgins or have an intact hymen, and they jump through all these hoops, and then they get married, and bam, suddenly they are supposed to feel open and sexual. What do you see? As soon as you sign the marriage contract, you need to be it all and give it all to your partner. And this is a point of huge discrepancy. So when I work in South Asia, Asia, Middle East, North Africa, the majority of cases that I see is vaginismus, which is the involuntary contraction of the muscles of uh, inside vagina and um, the opening of the vagina so that uh, there is no um, entering allowed. Definitely. And that's something I see in my practice all the time for people really not just who come from the Islamic faith, but any faith where there was a lot of rigid messaging around sexuality. And it's like the message is your whole life. Don't do it. It's wrong. Keep your legs together, this or that. And then suddenly you get married and now everything is supposed to be okay, but the body holds on to the message of no. And that shows up with that pelvic floor spasm, which can make intercourse at worst impossible and at best really, really painful for people. So it's a very, um, in that way, so there are, there, there are lots of dichotomies that are going on that we really, as practitioners and as people who have friends in that faith, we need to know how to navigate that to be able to help the person to um, kind of move on without stigmatizing or patronizing. I want to talk a little bit about your work on genital practices, because another genital practice that people often associate with Muslim communities is female genital cutting or mutilation. This practice most co is most commonly seen in African and Asian countries where Islam is the majority religion, but of course it can happen worldwide. So to clear things up, Sarah, what does the Quran say about cutting practices? Because my understanding is that the truth is Islam in no way endorses this practice. And it has more to do with gender inequality and control over female sexuality. 
It's absolutely not related to Islam, even like by bit. There is not a word in any of the, um, well, there's only one hadith that is mm -hmm. debated that, you know, like uh, a woman asks the prophet that, you know, so um, uh, this is going on in my family. There was a case. And then the prophet just said that, well, why don't you cut it a little bit back? And that okay. was it in the yeah. whole scripts, you know, that, that, that I am aware of. And that had nothing to do with, you know, that. Within the communities that this is practiced, also putting it into the context, many people think that sexual pleasure is a manly privilege. Right. So you just offer your body to get pregnant and to offer pleasure to your partner. Uh, and assuming that this is like a, you know, like a heterosexual relationship with a man. So in that case, uh, then yes, couple it with the context of the culture, right. not too many women not too much. speak that. Yeah. 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 You know, you've, you've spoken a few times so far about the importance of language and our word choice. And when you and I were emailing back and forth initially, I posed the following question, which was what messages are written in the Quran that might be misinterpreted as an effort to control sexuality. And you said we can do better than to use the word control. Yes. And I would love to learn a bit more about what you meant by that, because I always use the word control when talking about religion and sexuality. And so I think it'd be so empowering for me and for my audience to have better language. I really um, admire you for bringing that up because first of all, language is something that I'm obsessed with. I don't know if you know, my first degree is linguistics because I thought if we don't know how to talk, <laughs> I mean, we're not getting anywhere. Yeah. So, and often language is all we have to communicate and it's the least effective place to be, you know, like the tool that we have. So let's talk about control. One of the assumptions, and going back to the first question that you posed at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about the assumptions that people have and uh, stereotypical assumptions that people have um, um, around Muslim community. I think it's really interesting because control is one of them that always comes up. Who is controlling what? Even with the genital practices, one of the things that I was left with was uh, who owns whose genitalia? Like if your partner asks you to go get a Brazilian wax, is this whose genitalia are we talking about? But I want to do it because I want to give pleasure to my partner. Yes, but that would not occur to you if your partner didn't pose it. Yes. Right. So then I can actually expand it across cultures and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but within the Muslim community, I would say there are gender roles. There are um, certain interpretations of Islam that talk about LGBTQ plus communities that about the you know around the loot community within the Quran and the interpretation of that going beyond and without considering the context that we are living with right so for example we are going to lose a very faithful muslim muslim from the community because of their sexual orientation to me it's reducing a person to um, for me, many of the words that are used for LGBTQ communities, by the way, is mostly gay men mm -hmm. rather than women. So lesbians don't get the privilege to be talked about as much, just so you know. Yeah. Uh, the gays, they are actually often reduced, even the word that describes a gay, gay person, even the words within uh, majority of cultures uh, that oppose it is 
reduced to the asshole. Mm. So in a way, when you're talking to that body part, right? So it's like, so really, are you kidding me? Like the whole person is ignored. Yeah. And that that body part is highlighted. So these are the things that we are trying, like, for example, with the BBC uh, program that we had, I worked so hard with the Academy of Language in Iran to see if we could expand those words that, you know, we don't actually call them with that street and vulgar language, but actually call it like a relationship orientation, sexual orientation, you know, so, you know, so that. John Money talks about, you know, when you, when, you, uh, when you talk about a gay person, it's like a person who writes with right hand and left hand. It, it is the orientation. And right. pe- people really need to accept that. Mm-hmm. It you is know? what it is, yep. So like even scientifically, you know, we have brain studies. We have like, it's really interesting to me that, yes, part of it is socially constructed, context constructed. But on the other side of it is really interesting as how... And it's all based on fear to let go of that control. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Is emotional and physical intimacy a challenge in your relationship? Do you long for the feeling you had in the honeymoon phase? You're not alone. I've created a tried and true method for reinvigorating your relationship. My private online workshop takes an innovative yet scientifically based approach to teaching you the tools to cultivate passion and create connection that lasts. Visit emilyjamia.com workshop for your free trial. I am so confident that you'll have a positive outcome that I've created a 100% money back guarantee. You really have nothing to lose. And if that's not reason enough, subscribers to my podcast get 50% off. Subscribe to the show and use code half off at checkout. Offer expires at the end of the week. Visit emilyjamia.com slash workshop today. And now back to the episode. Tell me, is my understanding correct? And I'm sure it varies from country to country that there are obvious a lot of obviously a lot of prohibitions around homosexuality and being gay, as we've discussed. But what I think my understanding is that in some countries in particular, that people are more open to those who are transgender. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, it's a blessing and a curse, I have to say. So first of all, we have intersex recognized in uh, some of the countries within the Middle East and Muslim, you know, uh, culture and script. And so that's intersex because many people, you know, they can't distinguish kind of between all of these, right? You know, as as soon as you say gay, they say, oh, are they trans? Are they pedophile? You know, Mm -hmm. I do whatever, you know, they don't even, you know, distinguish. So that's that, intersex. Uh, There are also terms in some of the countries within the Middle East world, like the Polynesian culture, for example. The other one is um, the gay lesbian, bisexual, queer. So all of these have different treatments within different cultures, right? Transgender, unfortunately, uh, Iran, so for example, was one of the first countries that you know the Supreme Leader said, well, if you really feel like you're trapped in a male body, then please, by all means. So it was really progressive uh, for a religious leader to do that. And everybody jumped on it. It was fantastic mm-hmm. until it wasn't. Yeah. There's a darker side. The darker side became the society was not quite ready for them. The other one is because you're not allowed to be gay, then you choose the other route. Yep. I, if I'm, in, if I'm in, in a male body, I'm actually quite fine to be male. I just prefer a male partner. 
you know, as an intimate partner, as a companion for myself. Now I'm going to change myself to a woman. And I go all the way to change all of my body parts to become a woman and then be in a relationship with a man. Yeah. That, that is not, it, it's not even comprehensible. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's happening. Yeah. That's what's happening. I'm curious. Do you know if there are any sex positive messages that are written in the Quran that might be overlooked? Absolutely. So you talked about pleasure a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. There are detailed books that, you know, people know about Kama Sutra. Yeah. I invite you to read the Islamic text. Like the perfumed garden, which was written by an Islamic imam known as Nafzawi back in the 15th century. And I think this is a really cool text because it's actually written in conformity to Islamic theology. It's basically a very erotic sex manual. There's one passage that reads, quote, do not unite with a woman until you have been playful with her. And then the pleasure will be mutual. You will bring excitement to her by kissing her stomach and thighs. Once you finish, do not neglect any part of her body. Hold her tightly with tenderness, end quote. They actually describe orgasm as an event that happens in the name of God. What do you think of that? Perfume to God. Well, I don't know the names in English because I, mm-hmm. I read them in the okay. actual you know, the language, but that's a good one. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. Yeah. So it's a really interesting, like, a, for example, Haliatul Mutarin, like, you know, there are so many different texts. It is really interesting because, like, they are so specific about using the five senses to create sexual excitation. And it's both partners. It's never gender specific. It's both partners. There's a hadith from a prophet himself that says, don't be like a sparrow that goes and to your female partner and goes away. Make sure that, you know, both parties are aligned. So it's yeah. really, this is a poor translation, but I think that's what it is. In <laughs> so it's really interesting just to see that these are the parts that I think we can analyze Islam and what is, you know, like um, wrong and limiting and, you know, all of that. Uh, without dismissing it, obviously. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of it, again, if you are practitioners to move the needle forward, to find a way, we should become that water that doesn't need to move the blocks, but right. finds a way through or around the blocks mm-hmm. to get the job done, which is creating satisfactory relationships, uh, preserving bodily integrity, um, bringing consensual you know, dynamic to the couple them. So these are the things that, you know, at least use what we can to make people's lives more satisfactory within, you know, um, what we can. But I think there are so many positives that they can be drawn. Uh, The sense of equality, again, health, education, um, the rising of your partner. It's a very, very important uh, one. Uh, respect is very much mm-hmm. yes there are contradictory comments that you know in one verse it could be like you know respect your daughter and wife and mother you know all of that and then in the other one nudge them gently or you know like push them or lash them gently to listen to you so I hear that and I grew up with that dilemma mm. you know, that's why 
I followed this field. I'm like, I don't listen to anyone. I want to make sense of this for me. Yeah. And I'm not a practicing Muslim, just as a disclaimer again. Right. Can you, you mentioned that, and we didn't really talk about it that much at the beginning about what your experience was like growing up. You say that you heard some of these contradictory messages. What was life for, like for you? And how did you eventually end up in the field of sexuality and relationships? How personal do you want to go? <laughs> as personal as you're comfortable going <laughs> basically I am a product of paradox mm -hmm. that's the best way I can say it because my parents are from different sects of Islam they're not supposed to be married okay okay so that's that there's that mm -hmm. there's that and so my mother was my father's manager and then so anyway so there was a lot of story on their side and then they got together and they made, they made cases to make this happen because my mother's father was Islamic scholar. Oh. So it's a, it's a very interesting thing to go to. So mm -hmm. imagine that as a child growing up in that and they spoke different languages. They spoke so um, like it's, it's, it's no surprise for people that I'm a cultural advisor so right. <laughs> like I had to make sense of it for me. Exactly yeah yeah we tend to somehow go into a career I think that in some way reflects an experience that we had in our childhood I know that's true for me absolutely I would love to hear your story mm -hmm. well you know my dad is an OBGYN and so I grew up in a home where sex really was not a taboo subject mm -hmm. and I think naturally I became a sex therapist long before I even realized because I was comfortable talking to my parents about it but none of my friends were and so they came to me for sex advice and questions. And so it's, you know, I think it's something that really found me more than something I sought out. That's a part of my story. That's actually really interesting. I think we overlap at some points because in our family, we talked about sex, we were educated. Like, you know, my mother really had a formal session, sit down, we're gonna go through these. And I was mm -hmm. like, I don't know, seven. Yeah. So like, you know, like- a, It was very early for me too. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it was a part of it and the name mm -hmm. that, we gave to our genitalia. I thought everybody grew up like that, which right. was absolutely not right. Yep. It was not true. And then little by little, as people came to me for advice, I'm like, who am I to advise? What do I know? I went, yeah. went to my parents and my parents bought me books and you know, told me whatever that they knew. That wasn't enough because also our generation was changing so fast that um, you know, their knowledge or their information or the books that we had in Iran at the time mm -hmm. available, I mean, no, we didn't even have mm -hmm. words for certain things. Like orgasm was not a thing. Right. So, so you grew was, up You grew up in Iran then? I grew up in Iran. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then I went to England for okay. my mm -hmm. education and, you know, and then, but then I kept a very um, close tight with the United Nations Academy of Medical Sciences. And, um, you know, I wrote a whole sexual health curriculum for the country. I wrote something that I can actually share with you if, as a resource. Yeah. I, I call it the sexual culture index. Um, there are instructions that could go as detailed as what to talk about when you have sex, when to have sex. Uh, like, for example, in Judaism, 
that it's a it's it's an act for God almost that you know if I'm translating from Hebrew correctly, that if uh, when you have a sex in Shabbat and you know for the Shabbat time, mm-hmm. right? So these are the things that if you think about it in different religions, we have instructions how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, with whom to do it, right. who deserves what, and the pleasure is very new. Uh, in many of the you know um, cultures, I would say, but it's not very new, especially in uh, in Islam and Judaism, uh, it's not anything new. So if you go right. to the Old Old Testament and Quran, they're very much you know like a, um, similar. Um, yeah, so yes, uh, sex was talked about, but it was a dichotomy even in my family because we did talk about it but we were not supposed to have sex before, right. you know, being committed to a partner. So it's, it's all about, you know, how you balance it. Exactly. Exactly. What advice do you give your clients who feel, you know, called to still practice Islam or, you know, to practice Islam, but who are struggling with sexuality as it relates to their faith? I would say first sit down think to yourself what is it about islam and being a muslim that you cherish most that you celebrate most for yourself what are the rituals that are attached to those and whether they are encouraging or inhibiting to your sexual practices and sexual wants and needs that's one the other one is educate yourself educate yourself when i had clients i needed them to masturbate because of my protocol of treatment. And they came to me and said, this is like about 20 years ago in London. I clearly remember a couple, beautiful, sweet couple who came to me and I said, I need you to masturbate in this style that I want because it was the resensitization of the penis in that case. Um, And then the gentleman just looked at me and said, well, you know, in my religion, it's not allowed. I said, what is your religion? And then he said, Islam, I said, okay, who is your mujtahid or imam that you're talking? Is that okay if I talk to them? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And then I talked to them because in that case, the bigger goal was saving a marriage. He was allowed to masturbate. And I can give you 11,000 examples that we went around so many different things because of a higher stake. Mm -hmm. So as a practitioner, please don't give up. And I don't know how many of your listeners are practitioners, Emily. There's a good percentage. Good percentage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So lovely colleagues. I'm not asking you to be pushy or disrespectful towards your clients of any faith. What I'm asking you is don't be curious. We are past that era of, you know, we could afford curiosity. Be genuinely interested. And mm, then I like that genuinely, Right? Mm-hmm. Curiosity has a level of ignorance behind it. We can't afford it. Genuine interest brings informed questions, you know, Um, ignites creativity for you Mm -hmm. to really find a way as how to get through the hindrance just to get, you know, to where you want to be. And please, please don't mistake your role with an advocate of a person and um, rescuer that is a bad place to position yourself. It's not fair on you and it's not fair on the client, especially for LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Go live your life, be true to yourself. And I need to deal with the rest of it. When they are killed, they're isolated from the community, they cut from the inheritance. Um, 
please don't do that. Mm. Consider the context of the person's life. Yeah, thank you for that. I think those are very wise words and I hope that everybody listens carefully to them. Um, Sarah, what would you say are some of the biggest stereotypes around Muslim women? And can you debunk some of them for our listeners? That they are controlled. I'm going yeah, back to that <laughs> control yeah. situation. But we're not going to say controlled. <laughs> yeah. So, well, some of them are, you okay. know, in, in relationships. I mean, it's not only in Muslim communities, but, you know, I posted something on my Instagram mm-hmm. yesterday on narcissism and how mm-hmm. they control. I mean, a narcissist oh, yeah. from any faith. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So to control you without even knowing, right? So stereotypes, they are submissive. Do you know how many times people insulted my therapeutic voice and saying that, oh, you're so soft-spoken just because you're coming from Iran, they didn't let you talk. I'm like, I was the representative of the school since I was three. Yeah. So nobody silenced <laughs> me. <laughs> no. So I, if I have yeah. something that mm-hmm. you hear it, I can't shut up. You will yeah. hear it. Yeah. It's just the tone of my voice. And mm. Farsi is a very melodic language. So in most of the Mediterranean, you know, um, yeah. region, that is the tone of our voice, you know? Right. Do you know how many times they tell me that, you know, oh my God, you know, how can we help you? And that's all good faith. I love you for saying that. Mm-hmm. That's the impact on me. Right. Like, check with me first. Yeah. I think so that's You're like more. little three-year-old Sarah. I don't need saving. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's one. Again, you know, I don't want the advocates to be discouraged by hearing this. But on the other side of it, please, you know, like that's really important because that that creates a chasm between you and the person that you want to help. So that's one. So the control, the assuming that they need rescuing. Um, submissive is a big, yeah. big, big part of it. Mm-hmm. And whatever that... The, the outsider knows of Islam, they project that on the Muslim, Muslim woman. Please mm-hmm. just sit with them and ask them. So here are the things that I know. What is your take on it? Not what Islam, again, you know, going back know, to know, the beginning of our conversation, like this mm-hmm. is my understanding of Islam. I'm pretty sure between 1.6 million people that are out there and practice different forms of Islam, they're like, this woman is crazy. Or some people say, oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. you know and somewhere in between yeah. so it's it's that just mm-hmm. giving them benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. giving them the opportunity to uh, if you really really want to know giving them the opportunity to tell you what they abide by right right when they talk yeah about and i think i think of i mean there are so many stereotypes about every major religion and i think that especially for muslim women that they suffer a lot of stereotypes that are so unfortunate and so untrue i mean i can think of off the top of my head three couples i've had come through my office that are of different cultures where one is from a you know let's say a middle eastern country one that is islamic majority and it's that person in the relationship who wants to try all kinds of wild and crazy sexual things with their partner who is coming from a western culture who is the more inhibited one and so people come from all different places and have all kinds of desires and interest and desires for pleasure. And I think we have to, as you said, we, we can't afford to just be curious anymore. We have to be genuine. What did you say? Genuinely interested? Yes. Genuinely. Yeah, genuinely interested. I think that's a beautiful message. 
for people who are listening, it's totally off topic. But if they are thinking of dating, that's my advice to you too. Don't. Oh yes, it's great advice. Curiosity. <laughs> it's great advice. It's great advice. Sarah, I want to talk a little bit about your emergent love model because I think yeah. it's it's such an interesting model, and and I'd love for you to share it with people because you are writing a book about it. Yes, it's actually really interesting. That took me like this is basically the whole life that I lived. That. Sarah that can't shut up I told you about so I would get in a cab I would say are you happy in your relationship and I was <laughs> and then the guy just looked at me back then we didn't have lady drivers but now we do mm-hmm. all genders and unisexes but it's really interesting I would say like are you happy what what, what? I'm like yeah I just want to learn are you happy and <laughs> he said yes I'm like why do you think so why do you think not? Because many of the relationships that were around me and my parents' cases, both of them sociologists, um, I overheard them, like, you know, talking about their cases and all of that. I was like, is there one rule? Something that I could just say one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, what's the secret sauce? Yeah, that, that. And then I always wondered what happened to Cinderella when they went to that castle after getting married? because I was living in the after marriage part as a child of a family, and that was no Cinderella case. So, you know, these are the things that I was thinking and with that love story of the parents, Mm -hmm. so how did they end up bickering, you know? So all of these came together into about 12 years ago, I started going back through my therapy notes. I journal after my sessions. Mm okay so this came up this came up what does it make sense my clients you know having fun with that I make collages for them and then um, I realized that I could actually do a thematic analysis here like based on ground theory to see what are the words that I hear from couples who I assume to be thriving not satisfied not content necessarily but thriving Mm -hmm. they're like you know like that so I went through that. The, the whole research is, you know, is there if people want to see how it was done. Basically what came out of it, trust, commitment, compassion slash empathy, two very different things. We don't need empathy. We need compassion. That's really mm-hmm. important okay. in the majority of pieces of relationship. And then shared vision, physical attraction, which is very different than sexual excitation. Um, so these were the things that came up based on the first research, right? The qualitative being me, it was not enough. So I went forward. I know a little bit about that. (laughs) It's just too much, but you know, I love philosophy and analyzing things, but Mm -hmm. give me something to do. No. Right. I'm going to see the numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so then we put it into a quantitative research with a US representative sample that became the relationship panoramic inventory, the checkpoint that you just said at the beginning. Yes. Um, so here's how I work with it. Love doesn't come first, basically. To me, you need log, good quality log, good quality spark, put them together, fire is created. That is emerging love. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your work and your contribution. Where can people find the um, inventory and learn more about you? Um, I'm all over social media. If people care about like little bites, mm-hmm. 
if uh, I have a website, drsaranasserzadeh.com, and I'm, I, I think it will come I'm up. I'm going to link it in the bio. Mm-hmm. Thank you. In the resource page, there are certain things that people might find helpful. So, for example, if you're working with minority groups or um, uh, outreach populations, there is a book, uh, The Wheel of Context for Sexuality Education, uh, that, you know, is accessible, people can get. Um, yeah, so um, I think these are the ones. But for inventory, it's uh, it has its own platform that is relationship-panoramic.com. Couples can take it, and if they both or all of the parties uh, consent, they can receive the report themselves. It takes about 30 minutes to complete. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if not, uh, they can provide the name of a provider that the report goes to the provider so that they can facilitate the report for them and kind of highlight Mm -hmm. the areas that they are strong at that could pull from to make other areas So it sounds like a really good tool to reference even before starting therapy with someone so that you know what you're working with. Yeah, all of my clients have to take it before I see them. (laughs) I I need my... Your data. An eagle eye. Yes, yes. Well, Sarah, thank you so, so much for talking with me today. I don't care what you say. I think you are very, very knowledgeable and I learned so much from you and I know my audience will too. Um, I think there are so many great takeaway message from messages from today's conversation. So if you're listening, please share it with a friend and don't forget to subscribe. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. It was really enjoyable. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Love and Libido with me, your host, Dr. Emily Jamia. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and drop me a five-star review. Share with a friend who might find it interesting. As much as we can learn from experts, nothing makes us feel more connected than hearing from each other. If you have a story that relates to today's episode or just a general question about sex or your relationship, visit loveandlibido.com and I'll share it on an upcoming episode. Be sure to visit my website, emilyjamia.com to see my latest blogs and to check out my online workshop. Subscribers to my podcast can use code HALFOFF. Finally, you can follow me across all the social media channels for daily sex and relationship tips at Dr. Emily Jamia. Thank you so much for tuning in.